0: Well, I'm not going to lie. Maybe as you're diving into the book of Romans and reading and listening to sermons, Romans is hard. It's a hard book. It's a really hard book to understand. And maybe as you were here and you heard Jeff get up here and read our scripture passage for today, uh, you were sitting there saying, what in the world does that mean? Uh, When I came to this text and was preparing this sermon and I read verse 1 and verse 2 and verse 3... I said, what in the world is he talking about? And then I read it again, and I said, what in the world is he talking about? And I read it again, and I said, what in the world is he talking about? And I take comfort in this amazing truth that the apostle Peter, a different apostle, wrote about the apostle Paul. Peter said, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him, He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. When I looked at that, I said, okay, even the apostle Peter says, I don't understand what this apostle Paul guy says a lot of times. That brought me comfort. If another apostle feels that, then I'm in good company. But look at his exhortation. He says, when we come across those things that are hard for us to understand, we can't just say, 'Uh, I don't get this and I'm moving on. We can't just quit. We value the word of God. One of our values across your church is that we are people of God's word, meaning we honor God's word. We believe God's word is perfect, inerrant. We believe it's authoritative and we believe it's the perfect reflection of who God is. So if that's the case, We can't look at hard passages and blow them off, skip over them, or just say, I'm not going to look at that. We have to wrestle with God's word. We have to, what Martin Luther said, he said, "I, I beat this word till I get the meaning out of it. We wrestle with it because when we wrestle with it and we find that meaning, we find gold because this is the revelation of who God is. And when we take that approach, we get to know God. So even in hard passages like we're going to go into now, passages that are hard to to, uh, discern and figure out what they mean, we're going to wrestle through and find that meaning. And so that's one of the things I want to do here today. Not that long ago, about two years ago, some of our pastors on staff were at a theology conference, and uh, a speaker came forward. He was a theologian. He's a professor at um, a seminary in um, the Chicago area. And he got up, and his topic was extremely controversial. And he knew that looking out into this theology conference full of pastors and theologians and church leaders, that a lot of what he was going to say was going to be controversial. And there's going to be people with a lot of different opinions. And so he started off by saying, I want you to do something for me. Before I start, I want you to know that as I talk, what's going to happen in your head is you're going to start saying, Yeah, but what about this? Yeah, but what about this? Yeah, but what about this? And he said, I want you to pause that. Instead of saying, yeah, but, I want you to say, tell me more. Pause the yeah, but in your head, and instead just sit there a second and say, tell me more. We'll get to the yeah, buts, but as I talk, I want you just to take the position of tell me more instead of yeah, but. What a great practice for us to walk out Christ-like faith in the world that we have today. And I can tell you as the conference was there, I think we as the audience gave the speaker that benefit of the doubt. However, the Apostle Paul, in the text that we're going to look at today, did not get that benefit. The people he was addressing, he anticipated them to be saying, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. Paul just taught in this letter, Romans 1, Romans 2, and he knew that the stuff he talked about, especially in Romans 2, is going to cause this audience to say, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. I'm going to tell you why he knew that in a minute. But that's where they were. And Paul knew this. And he was anticipating this. Have you ever been in a situation where you know that no matter what you say, it's going to cause an argument. You just know there's no way of getting around this. Spouses are looking at one another. You just know whatever you say is going to cause an argument. That's where the Apostle Paul was. He was in the middle of these two groups. These two groups, he had a group on one side who were Christians who were raised Jewish. Jewish. So they're raised in the Jewish faith, they follow the Jewish law, they followed all these laws that said, this is how you gain favor with God, and then all of a sudden Jesus comes on the scene. And he dies, and he rises from the dead, and he says, now to follow God, you no longer follow the Jewish covenantal laws, what you do to follow God is you follow the person of Jesus. And that confuses them because now they're thinking, okay, in this group of people who are Christians, how much of it is our Jewish faith? How much of it is this new thing called Christianity? What does the church look like in a church service? Do we still do some of those Jewish things? Or is it all new? What does that look like? And it's a big mess. On the other side, he's talking to Christians who were not raised with any religious affiliation whatsoever. They are raised in a pagan Greek Roman culture. They adopted lots of sinful practices. They encounter the person of Jesus, and they say, I want to live for him. And this whole thing's all new to them. And they have no idea what they're doing. And so they're trying to grow and learn as new Christians. And you have these two groups in this same church. Now add to this. Claudius, the emperor of the day, says to the Jewish people, the people who were raised Jewish, you are kicked out of Rome because he's worried about an uprising. So he kicked every Jewish person or everyone with Jewish background out of Rome. So all those Christians who were Jewish and became Christian are now kicked out of Rome for 12 years. During that 12-year period, this group that are the Christians who had no religious background, they're running the church. They're putting things together. This is how we do this. This is how we do this. Now all of a sudden, 12 years is over, this group comes back. And they're saying, we want to worship together. It's a big mess. Because this group is saying, no, 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 that's not how you should have set it up. You have to remember some of these Jewish things. Because they go all the way back to Abraham, to our forefathers, to God. You can't just change that. And they said, we have no idea what you're talking about. And so there's this big, huge mess. And Paul is anticipating, arguing, and fighting. Because it's taking place. And Paul is finding that it's really, really hard to deal with uber-religious people who have lost sight of Jesus Christ, and it's really, really hard to deal with worldly, spiritually immature people who have lost sight of Jesus Christ, and so the only thing he knows to do is to bring that only thing that will transform and unite all human beings, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what he's laying out in this letter. Because not only does the gospel of Jesus Christ unite us with God vertically, it also unites us as God's people horizontally. And here's the deal. Paul's hidden agenda throughout the book of Romans, and we're going to see it really clearly in Romans 15 at the end, is Paul is desperate that people outside of these two groups who don't know Jesus, come to know Jesus. His passion is that people who aren't in this church now, who are not following Jesus, will one day follow him. That's his passion. But he knows that unless he deals with this mess in this church, that church is not going to adequately reflect the gospel or have an environment of love, an environment of God's faithfulness where those people who are far from God could come and know who he is. And so he has to address this issue because of this passion that he has, that lost people know Jesus. And he knows that he has to deal with proud, self-righteous, religious people who must be humbled and brought to the cross so a humble grace and a faithful love will become the environment of the church. And that's who he's focusing on in the passage we're looking at today. He's focusing on this group. He's going to get to this group, and he got to this group a little bit in chapter 1, but he's really focusing on this group today. In these first few chapters, he's dealing with two groups of people. First, he's dealing with the self-satisfied, worldly Christian Gentiles. And he did that mostly in chapter 1. And then he's also dealing with the self-righteous, the religious Christians who grew up in the Jewish faith, who said this is how it's supposed to be. And both groups needed an encounter with Jesus Christ. And in our text, Paul is going to address the self righteous group. Now, in chapter 1, we looked at last week, Paul laid out what happens when a human being is far from God. And in some ways, he was addressing this group. And he said, when you are apart from God, and you behave however you want, and you kind of say what's right, and you kind of say this is how it feels, you are causing God to move and respond in wrath. And he laid all that out. And as he's laying that out, You know what that group's doing? This group's doing, yeah, that's right. We're not like you. That's what you do. And that's why we said when you come to the word of God, and if that's your attitude, if you immediately think of somebody else besides yourself, you've missed the point. And so now, with this group saying, yeah, it's those Gentile people, they're the one messing this up. If they had our heritage and our background, we would be right. That's what it is. And then in chapter 2, Paul goes, oh, yeah? Well, let me talk about you. You are no better. And now he's getting ready for the pushback. Because in telling this group, with that religious background, with that religious heritage that they are no better, there is going to be pushback. And that's what our passage today is addressing, and that's what it's all about. He's anticipating this. And he knows this is going to happen because he's seen this over and over. You see, when Paul goes into a city as an apostle to proclaim the gospel of Jesus, it says he'd go to the synagogues. That's these people the people who are Jewish or the people who are Jewish and newly Christian. And he begins to say the things he said to them in Romans 1 and 2, that all need a savior because all are under wrath, and they always push back. They always get to the point where he knows the arguments. So in Romans chapter 3, he's like, I'm going to save you the time. I know that this is your argument, so I'm going to write these arguments out, and I'm going to give you the counter to your pushback. That's what's happening in this passage we're going to look at today that's why it could be confusing without the context so if you have a bible i encourage you to open it up to romans chapter three we're going to look at the first eight verses in this chapter and in this chapter we're going to see the four major pushbacks to what paul just laid out in chapter one and chapter two the four major pushbacks look at verses one and two pushback number 1 what advantage then is there to being a jew or what is the value that what value is there in circumcision paul's response much in every way first of all the jews have been entrusted with the very words of god the first pushback is what i call the ethnic pushback what's the point of being jewish in other words, they're saying to Paul, how can it be that God made this covenant with the Jewish people who were descendants of Abraham and he said, you follow these laws and you do these things and you'll be in right relationship with God and now all of a sudden, anybody who wasn't raised that way can just by choice be brought into a relationship with God and receive favor. If that's the case, what's the point of being Jewish? Why should it ever have happened? That's the pushback. And Paul counters this by saying, there's a great advantage to being Jewish. Yes, God now, through Jesus Christ, is drawing all human beings to himself, regardless of their ethnic background, but that doesn't mean there's no point to God choosing the Jewish people thousands of years before. In fact, one of the biggest advantages you have is the Jewish people received more of God's truth than any other human being on the planet up to this point because they were the first to receive it. The very scriptures were given to them, it says in verse 2. Through the Jewish people, the scriptures will go out to every human being. That's the Old Testament. And because of those scriptures, the whole world will know of the amazing plan that God has to restore humanity back to himself. They will receive the gospel because the Jewish people received the scriptures first. And we here today at Crossview Church are benefiting from that. We are part of that advantage that went to the Jews. We are receiving from that. So Paul says, yes, there is an advantage. However the advantage is still not enough to create within you a righteousness of your own that satisfies God. Both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. Both need a savior. Then he goes to pushback number two. Look at verses three and four. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all, he counters. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Pushback number two is the faithfulness of God pushback. Isn't this on God? This even shouldn't be on us. In other words, God promised to be faithful to the Jewish people and be with them. Now, Paul, you're saying they're under sin. So doesn't that mean that God just set them up for failure and he's unfaithful to them? God did not live up to his word, Paul, if this is what you're saying is true. He said that if the Jewish people are under sin, that means God didn't help them. That means God fails in his plan to save the world. That's the pushback. And Paul's answer to this one is obvious. Not at all. The unbelief of the entire Jewish race or the unbelief of any human race or any person cannot keep God from accomplishing his plan. God keeps his promises and he remains faithful even when his people are unfaithful. In fact, God's faithfulness is made greater because of that. When we as God's people are unfaithful to him and he continues in faithfulness to us, that makes his faithfulness even brighter. It makes it shine brighter. And to highlight this, Paul takes a quote from one of their heroes, who's David, from Psalm 51, and that's what's at the end of verse four, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. David committed a whole bunch of terrible sins. And what he's saying in this is, he was willing to be judged so that God is proved right. David says, Yes, you should judge what is wrong, God, even if it is me. And David was one of their heroes. David, in spite of his failure, said, God is right. He's faithful and good, and he needs to act in that faithfulness and goodness, even if it comes down on me. We should take comfort in the fact that God is so faithful. We can take comfort that God is true to his word, and he is who he says, and he's entirely trustworthy. And so like we looked at last week when we run across something in the Bible that we might not agree with or that we may take offense to or that we might want to twist, we have to say, whoa, 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 it's not that I take this and change it so it's more palatable to me. I take my heart and I say, God, what is wrong with my heart that's not seeing this in right godly perspective? And one of the reasons we do that is because of the character of God and his faithfulness throughout thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. How arrogant of us in our 18, 28, 48, 58, 78 years look back at a God who's been faithful for thousands and thousands and thousands and think we have the ability to determine what should be practiced and what shouldn't. The pushback continues. Look at verse 5. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not, Paul responds back. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Pushback number three is this the confused righteousness pushback. I call it the confused righteousness pushback. Is God really righteous? Here's their argument. In other words, because God is the one who came up with all these moral demands in the first place, he was the one who came up with all these laws knowing that we would not be able to keep them. Isn't that make him the bad guy? If he came up with these laws knowing that there's no way we're gonna keep these, then it's on him. He's not righteousness, or he's not righteous, he's not just. And Paul goes on and says, giving these moral demands, this law, didn't immediately make the human race guilty. It's not like God set this up and put a target out there somewhere that he knew the human race would never hit. The target has always been present. What the law did was bring that target into focus. Human beings could always turn to God for help, God's righteous character is and always will be the standard. The law is a standard of how we live by. And when God put together the law, he did it to magnify the target, God's holy character. And the law shows us how to live. God didn't give the holy standard, the law, to invent and justify his wrath. He gave clear lines of right and wrong as a means of Grace to confront humankind in our offenses so that we could be saved. The law is the first step to us being redeemed. The law is the first step to us being saved. How else would we know we need a savior unless we realize we did something wrong? So God, rather than letting wickedness unconsciously take us over, he cared enough to confront us and identify our sin, so we put together the law where we drifted away. So now when we drift away from him, we can tell we drift away from him, and we can be brought back. Isn't that what a loving God would do? Isn't that what a loving father would do? Finally, the last pushback, look at verses 7 and 8. Well, someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Pushback number four is the twisted reasoning pushback. This group, Paul's anticipating them saying, isn't God glorified when we sin?" If I lie, God's truth shines brighter. So if I sin, he becomes greater. Because now with the law, we can tell what is true. Doesn't that give God glory by making him the true one when I'm the liar? In other words, God looks really good when I blow it. So shouldn't we just keep blowing it so that God looks good? And my interpretation of what Paul is saying is that's messed up thinking. Anyone who would ask such a question, anyone who presents such a pushback, doesn't understand how a relationship works. They have no clue about a relationship. God created his people, but he wants us, he wants to be in relationship with us. He wants his people to be faithful to him because he loves us and he knows that is what's truly best. He knows that is where he is glorified. He's glorified in our obedience, not in our disobedience. And this thinking fails to comprehend that sin is destructive to human beings. It fails to comprehend that sin is destructive to human beings. Sin is not neutral. This is kind of like saying, you know... Our firefighters do such an amazing job when there's a wildfire. It's incredible to see their training in action. It's incredible to see what they do. So, you know what? Every year, let's just set a whole bunch of wildfires. Because then we get to see our firefighters in action. And we get to see how they tackle this fire and we see their training and they look just so good doing it. It's just such a great thing. Why don't we just do that? And it forgets all about the victims of a wildfire. It loses sight of the bigger point. You see, anytime there is sin, it always, always hurts someone. Let me say that again. No one is immune from the effects of sin. Anytime there's a sin, it always hurts somebody. It's contrary to how we are supposed to live in the garden of eden sin separates god from his creation and he loves us so much he doesn't want us to live in sin he wants us to live in that place where we sense the forgiveness from god through his son jesus christ the grace of god the mercy of god that says i will if you come and repent and turn to me i will believe, i will give you a clean slate I will look at you in a clean way and forgive you your sins and when we take that reality, it makes us say, God, you are so good. I want to live in obedience to you because of your amazing goodness. Not because I want to pay back. Not because I want to try to make you look good. But Paul ends this pushback to say, if you think... That by sinning more and more, you make God look good. You have no idea what a relationship is, and you have no idea what sin is. And it's amazing the sentence he has at the end of verse 8 for that. He said, If that's you, you know what? The condemnation is just. That's pretty powerful words. Then he goes on in the rest of the cha- or from nine verse nine to eighteen, and he doubles down on what he talked about in chapters one and chapter two, that there is not one human being, religious or not, that can stand before God in their own merits. There's not one human being that is good enough or righteous enough or perfect enough in their own strength to stand before God. So that we all are in this great dilemma where we need a Savior. There's not one of us who would want to stand before a holy God in the own merits that you can put together. Would you really want to do that? It's not a good idea because it won't measure up. We need a Savior. And we have to die to our pushback, pushback, pushback and fall on our knees before our Savior Jesus Christ and say, I need you. There's no way I can do this life or the one that's going to come after death without you. And the reality of that should drive us to our knees, not into a posture of pushback. These pushbacks are simply oppositions to grace. Self-righteous religious people hate grace. Self-righteous religious people hate grace. They say it's better to earn God's approval. It's better to strive for God's approval. It's better to be proud and allow working for God's approval to tell me I'm okay and I'm a good person. And you know what? That voice of self-righteousness can creep into any one of us where we start telling ourselves it's better that I earn it. It's better that I measure up. It's better that I put together some record so that people can see how godly I am and also God could see how godly I am. And the answer is grace. Grace is God's unearned favor, that God pours favor on you and he loves you, not because you're good, but because he's good. But grace is something else. Grace is also God's power at work in us, to do through us what we could never do in our own strength. And so what Paul is trying to drive to these group of people who grew up in the Jewish spot, who are self-righteous, is he's saying, you can never act out enough righteousness with all those laws you were given. You always blew it. You never were successful So why do you want to stay there when God is offering you through Jesus Christ this thing called grace? And what grace will do, it fills your heart and then it is a power inside of you that works through you so then you can behave the way God wants you to behave. That's the Christian life. It's not trying to keep the rules. It's allowing grace to fill our lives and empower us. Where we say, God, you are so good, you are so loving, you are so gracious, it just makes me want to worship you, and that pulls us into holiness. That pulls us into obedience. It's lavishing on God's grace that we, are, we begin to walk in obedience. Grace is a game changer. It transforms us to be more like Jesus, whether we are sinful pagan people or we are self righteous religious people. The gospel is a gospel of grace. And Paul was anticipating these arguments. He was anticipating this opposition to grace. And he was addressing it boldly. Pastor Chuck Swindoll talks about how grace intersects our lives on a daily basis in three ways. First, he says this that grace releases the individual from a self-righteous control. Grace releases the individual from a self-righteous control. When you start living by a set of rules, when you start thinking you have to follow all these things to earn favor from God and show people how godly are, you are building yourself into a prison and you don't even know it. And you're not, you're stiff-arming the grace of God. And what grace does is it brings down that stiff arm and allows you not to live in a prison, but to live in the grace and love of God. Second, grace removes religious performance as the means of relationship with God. It's no longer you have to follow these rules, you have to follow all these things to get God's approval. Now you follow a person, Jesus Christ. You deny yourself, you die to him. You have to do three things. First of all, you have to turn from your sin and turn to God. Second of all, you have to trust Jesus is the Son of God, and all He said, and you put all your life into Him. And third, you treasure Jesus Christ above all things. What He says matters. We don't have the right to create the truth we want to create. When we treasure Him, we say, We trust you. And now it's no longer religious performance, it's receiving grace is what brings us into that relationship. Finally, number three, grace completely changes the purpose of doing good works in the life of the Christian. So in this camp, you do all these good things and you hope your good outweighs your bad. You hope that you can stand before God someday and he says, well, yeah, there's enough good and it'll never work. There's not enough good to outweigh your bad. So what is, where do good, doing good things, where does that come into? How does that come into play? Well, now with grace, where good works comes is good works is the expression of worship to God, not the means of trying to get into good favor with him. So now instead of trying to do all these good things to earn favor, we're like, God, I receive your grace, I receive your goodness, I receive your love, I receive your mercy, and you are so amazing and you are so good. What right response would I have than to live out your ways wherever I go? Now that's where good works comes in. Good works is evidence that your heart has been changed. Good works is an outpouring of love and worship to the God who saved you. That's the place of good works. It's not to balance scales. It's to worship God. We need God's grace. It radically changes how we relate to God and how we relate to others around us. It determines how we handle life. You know where you can see, whether you're living in grace or whether you're living in self-righteous law, the most in three areas of your life. In your possessions, in how you live life, and how you view yourself. With your possessions, and with how you live life, and how you view yourself. Let's look at possessions. Self-righteous religion, when it comes to your possessions, says you gotta keep that. Be proud of it. It's yours. You earn that. It's good reward for good behavior. You deserve that. Grace says, be grateful for that. Share it. If you're a believer, you don't own anything. It's all a gift from God. And your position is to be a steward, to manage all God gave you. And you position your life through grace with a hand wide open. In regards to how you live your life, self-righteous religion says, keep striving to earn God's approval because enough is never quite enough. Grace says, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, you have all of God's approval and you couldn't get any more. It's all yours and his grace is sufficient. You couldn't be any more loved. You couldn't be any more... uh, Have any more grace poured upon you or any more mercy poured over you? You have it all in Christ Jesus. In regards to how we look at ourselves, self righteous religion says one of two things either you're never ever good enough, or it says I'm a great person because look at all I've accomplished, look at all the good I've done. Grace says I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner who has been given the righteousness of God and my only hope in this life is to look to Jesus Christ. I want you to pause a moment. I want you to think about those three areas. Your possessions, how you live your life, and how you look at yourself. Which voice is louder in your life? Is the self-righteous, striving, earning, comparing, hoping to get approval from God and others, is that the loud voice in those areas? Or is it grace? Have you found grace? Have you found grace knowing you have this amazing resource in your soul of love and power. Listen to this. Listen, 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 listen. Listen, listen. I used to think that you obey God so that you can be blessed by God. I used to think that you obey God so that you can be blessed by God. Actually, the truth is, obeying God is the blessing. Obeying God is the blessing. Because when you're obeying God in the right way, you're living in grace. Because it's the only way you can obey him. So when you're living in this life of grace, where you're lavishing in the fact that God loves you, not because you're good, but because he's good, and you're lavishing in the fact that he's poured his mercy and grace upon you just because of who he is, not because of anything you did. When you live in that place, the thing that overflows is this obedience, and that's the blessing. We obey God not to bargain with him and get something. Our obedience, when we live in that place, that's the blessing. And we allow by grace to let God come and enfold us into his eternal love and we are filled with the desire to live and obey him and get this listen to this, that kind of life, where you're overwhelmed with grace, and because of that grace, you're obeying him, and that's the blessing. That kind of life is much richer and better than any life we, any other life we can try to bring to the table. Any other life you and I can create on our own falls short of a life of obedience empowered by grace. Wouldn't it be great if there was just one thing that could shift us from our striving and self-righteousness to a life of grace? Wouldn't it be great if it was just that simple? If there was just one thing that we could focus on, and by focusing on that, it would automatically move us from the self-righteous place into this life of grace. Well, you're right. I'm going to give you one thing. It's humility. Humility. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. James 4.6. Humility is so critical to the Christian life, I would say humility is the most essential trait to the disciple of Jesus Christ. And so what is humility? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. That's what so many people think. So I have to think less of myself, think less of myself. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. I love this definition from Tim Keller. He says, humility is thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's knowing who you rightly are before God and knowing who you are before others. When you think of yourself less and you focus more on Christ, you're infused with God's power and his grace. You see, this is how you live a holy life. This is how you say no to bad habits. This is how you become more and more like Jesus. You humble yourself, you get dependent, God pours grace upon you, and then you're empowered to live that way. Gavin Ortland says this, that grace is, or humility is too wonderful of a thing for us not to consider and pursue. It is like oxygen to the Christian life. Humility is restorative and normalizing. Humility is for your soul what a good night's sleep is for your body. And you know why? Because humility releases the grace of God in our life and allows us to embrace God and be the people he longs us to be without all the pushbacks. But that doesn't come naturally to us. To receive God's grace, we have to admit our helplessness. To receive God's grace, we have to say, God, I need you. To receive God's grace, we have to trust who he is and what he said in his word. And to receive God's grace, we have to trust in his supernatural power. We must lean into Jesus Christ each and every day because we need him. Crossview Church, I encourage you and I encourage me to humble ourselves to come to Jesus and to let him be our everything. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it seems kind of like madness to have this amazing thing in front of us called grace and push back and say, yeah, but what about how I want to live? What about this and what about that? And In our pushback, that shows that we don't know what grace really is, which means we don't really know who you are. And so will you open our eyes to see you as you truly are? Would you open our eyes to see grace and truth as it really is. We want to surrender our hearts and minds to you and ask that you'd move in a way where we find true life, where we find abundant life. We find a life of blessing and obedience that exalts your name in everywhere we go and whatever we do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.